0: Okay, so today we are beginning with what we originally planned to be a two-part mini-series on the topic of service and humility. But if you were here last Friday night, the opening night of our missionary conference, then there you heard Tim Beer, missionary to Zambia, open God's word to Philippians chapter 2. And there Tim pointed out that Jesus made of himself no reputation That a child of God has the mind of Christ, and that in his strength, we're able to follow Christ's example of humility and service. So, as he ended his message, it was obvious that our two-part series on humility and service had just become a three-part series, with Tim, unbeknown to him, providing the introduction last week. And today, we're going to continue with the same topic, service and humility, in the book of John. And next week, Phil will conclude our mini-series uh, by returning to Philippians chapter 2. In John, we have a book that shares more of Jesus' teaching than either Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And we're in a chapter of the book, chapter 13, where the pace of John's writing it slows down rather dramatically. While the first 12 chapters of the book cover a three-year period of time, the next six chapters, beginning with our chapter, chapter 13, cover less than one 24-hour period. Just prior to chapter 13, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Monday, he had cleansed the temple. Tuesday, the religious leaders sought to arrest him. Wednesday was probably a day of rest and preparation As on Thursday, he is observing the Passover with his disciples. And that brings us to our passage today, chapter 13, verses 1 through 20. These are verses that introduce what has come to be known as the upper room discourse. Now, we don't use the word discourse very much. So in looking up its meaning, there are two definitions. First, a discourse is that which is spoken or written authoritatively about a subject. And this fits our passage quite well in John 13, 1 through 20, because there Jesus speaks as the ultimate authority about the subject of humility and service. The second definition states that a discourse is an explanation of how the world is to be viewed, and a discourse by Jesus is exactly how the world is to be viewed. So now, as we prepare to read verses 1 through 20, let's first consider how a Scottish Baptist minister by the name of Alexander McLaren, how he described the upper room discourse. And I think why his words are actually worthy of consideration is that six days a week, Mr. McLaren would go into his study at nine AM to study the scriptures and prepare his sermon. And once in his study he would actually kick off his slippers and put on his actual work boots. Why? just to remind him of the hard work that he was about to do. His work ethic, coupled with his deep devotion to Christ and his word, brought McLaren the reputation among his peers as being the prince of expositors, which is just a fancy way of saying he was a really, really good Bible teacher. And he said this about the upper room discourse. Nowhere else do the lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and his human tenderness shine with such brightness. Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and yet so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other pages have so many eyes misting with tears cried and then had those same tears dried with these words of Jesus. The words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber best reveal his character. And when these verses are examined with proper reverential excitement, they will accomplish great good in our lives. Our reverent examination of these words begins in John 13, verse 1, and will end in verse 20. So at this time, I'm going to ask Ryan, Mickey, and Phil to come and share the reading of that scripture. Ryan will be reading the words of John. Mickey will be reading the words of Peter. And Phil will be reading the words of Jesus.
1: Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He lay aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do do you wash my feet?
2: Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand.
1: Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet.
2: Then Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me.
1: Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head.
2: And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you.
1: For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do
2: you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the
0: one who sent me. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now examine these verses, the story of your Son washing the feet of his disciples, may We look into your word with a a reverence and an excitement that comes from knowing that your word is is living and it's active. And that, Lord, through the working of your Holy Spirit, we know that it it can accomplish great good in our lives. So we we do ask that, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll examine our passage verse by verse as we go through our study together. Beginning with the first part of verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. That's the first part of the verse. And what we see here is that Jesus knew that his death was near. With this in mind, consider the following. The old craftsman knew that his time was running out. He spent a lifetime earning his reputation as the finest maker of violins ever. His violins were eagerly sought by the greatest violin players in the world. But his hands had made their last instrument. His hands just didn't work the way they used to. His illness had progressed too far. But his artistry would live on in the hands of his sons, who had willingly learned from their dad. They knew all of the technical aspects of the work. There was no need or time for any further instruction regarding that. No. In the little time that he had before he would breathe his last breath, it would be more important for this father to pass on the secret of his heart. How he was motivated not by money or even the beauty of a fine instrument, but rather by the beauty of the music itself. How the technical skills of making a violin was only half of the process and that it was his heart that went into the making of each violin. That's what mattered the most. This was the important lesson that he had tried to teach his sons, but only a few more days remained and perhaps even hours for him to drive this lesson home, which he did up to and including his very last breath. Last words reveal a lot about a person's values. They carry much more weight than normal conversations. And that's what we have here with Jesus in John 13. When time is short, Priorities move to the forefront. Whatever message a departing person wants to leave behind takes center stage at the end. Of course, for Jesus, we know that all of his words are of utmost importance, but I think it's helpful for us to at least consider the timing of these words. It's the day before his death, and what we look at today is a legacy lesson to be left with his disciples, wanting their undivided attention. He meets with them in the upper room. And in the second part of verse 1, we see his why. We see his motivation. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. And he loved them to the end. Perhaps you can remember a favorite teacher, a teacher that seemed to care for you, both as a student and as a person. Jesus was that kind of teacher and, and so much more. He loved his own. Those four words summarize exactly how Jesus treated his disciples. He loved them. There was never a single action or a single word on the part of Jesus which was contrary to his love for them. Even when he rebuked them, he loved them. Loving them, he sought to disciple them so that after his departure, they might live and speak his message. In life, And now in preparing for death, his love never failed. So during a time when, at least humanly speaking, we would think that Jesus might need the comfort of his disciples, instead, he sought to give them comfort. And he did that by sharing a life lesson about humility and service. And in verse 2, we see that Judas is a part of this story. Reading, During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to, de- to betray him. So at this point, Judas had already agreed to betray Jesus under the cover of darkness so as not to stir up the crowd. Now, I think if any of us were at a dinner party and we had gotten word that one of the other guests was planning to harm us, we'd most likely find ourselves anxious and even preoccupied with our own personal safety. And we may take some steps to protect ourselves in that situation. But in verse 3, we see Jesus described as the one who knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He knew that Judas was choosing to listen to Satan, but Jesus also knew That God was in control. So for now, Jesus is going to keep Judas in his circle of disciples. After all, Judas had feet that needed to be washed. So in verse four, Jesus begins to give a real life visual, a hands on parable of what he wants to leave with his disciples. Essential teaching about servanthood and humility. Starting with verses four and five, He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus gets up from the table, then he takes off the robe that he's wearing. And that that makes sense since his robe, his outer garment would have gotten in the way of him being able to complete the task that he was about to do. He then takes a linen cloth, a towel, and he wraps it around his waist. This is a strange thing for the disciples to see, and it totally catches them off guard. What's what's Jesus doing here? I mean, here he is. He's wrapping himself with a towel. That's the uniform of a servant, and it's the towel that seems out of place on Jesus. It's the towel that makes Jesus conspicuous here, but the towel is what he needs to act out this parable of humility in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. And no offense to, these, to the disciples, but these were probably not well-manicured feet that were about to be washed. I can recall being at a Promise Keepers event a while back, and it's an almost, it was an almost all-men event. And I say almost all-men because I do remember that the wife of Colorado football coach Bill McCartney, the organizer of the event, that his wife was there. And she was there because at the end of a message On the topic of serving our spouse, Coach McCartney washed his wife's feet on the stage in the presence of many thousands of men. Now, I wasn't sitting that close to the stage, but I seriously doubt if Mrs. McCartney's feet were really all that dirty to begin with. I can recall a couple of other foot washing ceremonies in a church setting, and in each case, the feet to be washed were pre-washed and pre-cleaned, but not so in the upper room. These were the soiled feet of 12 disciples. So let's do the math. 12 disciples. Hmm. That's 24 dusty, dirty feet and 120 crusty, dirty toes. All to say that this wasn't going to be a quick and easy token act of service on the part of Jesus. Jesus, the one who was king of kings and Lord of lords, laid his robe aside and put on a towel. And he began to wash the feet of men. He who was master became the servant. The highest took the place of the lowest. The sovereign king became the lowly subject. The master of the towel showed the humility of a servant. Here, Jesus was demonstrating the path to service, showing that the way to love was found in humility, all expressed in the use of a towel. Unlike da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper, the disciples were not sitting on chairs. They would have been on low-lying cushions of a sort arranged around tables that contained the food with the upper part of each person's body facing the food, food with their feet facing away from the table. It was in this setting that Jesus gets up and begins to wash the disciples' feet. This was work, but it was a chosen work on the part of the Lord and his act of humility and service is going pretty well. That is, until he comes to Peter in verse 6. So he came to Simon Peter. He, that's Peter, said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter's totally perplexed as to think that this leader should have to stoop so low as to wash feet. But Jesus, Jesus is in teacher mode and he wants Peter to understand what's going on here. So I think he's sensitive to Peter's challenging tone of voice. Jesus responds in verse 7. What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. He's saying, all right, Peter, you might not get it now, but it's going to sink in later on. He's saying, from, from Peter's perspective, I think Jesus Jesus is thinking he gave a pretty good answer. But no, Peter is still questioning this response from Jesus. It's not quite good enough. He still has an issue with the Messiah, the king, taking a towel and stooping so low as to wash his feet. So, Peter, knowing Peter, impulsively tells Jesus what to do by saying to him in verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. And there's a strong double negative going on here on the part of Peter. The Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he translates Peter's statement this way, You shall by no means wash my feet. No, never. Question. Could we, would we, do we ever question Jesus? Would you or I ever tell Jesus that we doubt his wisdom? Would we ever tell Jesus that we're not going to do what he wants us to do? If so, why? Why would we take issue with the directive of Jesus? When I do that, it's pretty much a matter of pride. I mistakenly think it's because I know better And I know what's best for me. (laughs) But when I think like that, I mistakenly disobey as well. Now, for Peter, it could be that he's taking issue with Jesus because he really is responding out of his own unworthiness before Jesus. But another reason for Peter's defiance could also be just the opposite, as it may relate to a couple of ways to Peter's pride as well. He could be offended By Jesus' actions because he knows that if he were in the same place, if he were the master instructor, the teacher, the leader in charge, he would never consider stooping so low as to wash someone else's feet. That task would be delegated and be beneath him. So he'd have someone else do that. So another reason besides that, that Peter's pride could also be a factor here is because he just doesn't want to admit that he needs anything, even from Jesus. Does that sound familiar? does our sinful pride often disguise itself under the cloak of humility do we have trouble admitting to anybody that we need something I think that at this point in the story Peter stands as a good example of the pride that can be present in our own hearts whenever we resist Jesus ministry to us but then Jesus explains to Peter that it's not all about him Peter's no way Jesus no way will you wash my feet was answered by Jesus in what I think would be a tender, caring voice with these words. If I don't wash you, then you have no part with me. Ah, that hits the nerve with Peter. And Peter wants all the fellowship with Jesus he can get. So he responds with an entirely different attitude. Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Initially, I think that sounds like a pretty good answer from Peter. I mean, I can picture him holding out his hands and to be washed and thinking to himself, all the work that these hands will ever do, I will do as unto you, O Lord. And then I can picture Peter bowing his head for it to be washed. And I'd like to think that Peter was indicating that he wanted to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ in obedience to the Lord and in service to him. But but no, that's not... Exactly what's happening here. No, the quick to answer Peter was, I think, getting closer to the right answer, but he was still off topic, as our Lord explained in verse 10. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. So let's talk about the words bathe and wash. There's a difference, a crucial difference, an important difference, a significant difference. The Greek word translated bathed in John thirteen ten is luo, and it means to bathe all over. The Greek word translated wash in John 13, 5, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, it's nipto, and that means to wash a part of the body, and the distinction is so very important. Jesus was telling Peter that Peter didn't need to rewash his whole body just because his feet were dirty. You see, in those days, a rich householder had a large bath in the center of the center court there, if you will, in his home, where he would step down into the bath and get a complete washing, a luo. Then when he went out with his open sandals, walking on the dusty, dirty roads and returning home, one of his servants would come and wash his feet, a nipto. He didn't have to be bathed every time he returned home, but he did need to have his feet washed. When a sinner trusts the Savior, he is bathed all over and his sins are washed away and forgiven. Hebrews 10:17. and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. However, as the believer walks in this world, we're tempted. And when we're tempted, we may choose not to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we sin. And that's when we need nipto. We need a part of our body washed. We need that area of our life cleaned to get rid of the dirt. We know this washing is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples as he's talking to Peter. But Jesus, knowing that among his disciples, there is an exception, an anomaly, someone who has heard but did not listen, as we read in verse 10, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. And we know well the identity of the one who had the feet washed, but still was not clean, don't we? Judas had made his decision to reject the life-giving, cleansing words of Jesus. Words like the words found in John 6:63: 6, The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you they are full of the spirit and life. So even though Judas spent much time with Jesus and heard many of his words, Judas did not listen to his words that are spirit and life. A little later, Jesus will say to his disciples in John 15:3, you're already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. But when Jesus spoke those words to his disciples, Judas was already gone. Yes, Jesus cleansed 12 pairs of feet, but it only benefited 11 of those disciples, as it didn't do Judas any good, because he had not been bathed all over. Now in verse 12, we see that Jesus needed to check as to whether or not the disciples are grasping his lesson. So he asked a question. Do you know what I have done to you? I wonder if he paused, waiting for an answer. Of course, we might expect Peter to say something of the lesson that he learned, but that didn't happen. So hearing no response, Jesus explains the significance of the lesson in simple terms in verses 13 through 15. You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. So here in the context of our passage, Jesus has set the example. The path of humility is clear. The disciples saw Jesus assume a position of humility and service because he loved those he served. Where it says back in verse 1 that Jesus loved them to the end, it means he loved them to the uttermost with a love that lasts to the end. It means a love that is extreme, the most love ever. So Jesus washed his disciples' feet as an example of what it means to serve one another in love. The the disciples would soon be sent out as messengers for the Christian church. They'd be leaders in many places. Indeed, James, John, and Peter, they became the leaders of the Christian church there in Jerusalem. And Jesus taught these soon-to-be leaders that as they labored to spread the gospel, they first and foremost had to be servants, one to another, and to those to whom they ministered. The disciples must have remembered this lesson often as they dealt with the struggles of the early believers. How many times must they have remembered that they were called to serve and and what a difference that made. Just imagine how difficult the growth, even the existence of the early church would have been if the disciples had got stuck, got stuck arguing, are maneuvering for spots of greatness and importance. But they didn't get stuck. No, they took Jesus' lesson to heart in verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. J. Vernon McGee states that what Jesus is doing here in this verse is using the compelling logic that a lawyer might use when stating his case. If it's true, if it's true for the greater, Jesus, then how much more true is it for you, the lesser? Mr. McGee then goes on to tell this story. In 1970, I was among 12,300 delegates to the InterVarsity's Urbana Convention, where we heard John Stott give a masterful application of the truth of this passage. He told a story about Samuel Logan Brengel. In 1878, when William Booth's Salvation Army had just been so named, men from all over the world began to enlist. One man, Pastor Brengel, crossed the Atlantic from America to England to visit and to enlist, actually more than visit, to enlist. He was a Methodist pastor at the time, but he left the pastorate to be part of this movement. As he was beginning his work, William Booth observed that Mr. Brengel was accepting his duties and responsibilities reluctantly and grudgingly so noticing this attitude booth said to brengel you've been your own boss way too long so he set him to work cleaning the boots of the other trainees brengel sarcastically said to himself have i crossed the atlantic only to clean boots <laughs> immediately what he says almost as in a vision he saw jesus bending over the feet of rough dirty men Washing their feet. And his heart immediately changed. Lord, he whispered, you washed your disciples' dirty feet. Surely I can clean the boots of these men, your servants. The servant of Jesus serves others just as Jesus did, in humility, not reluctantly, not grudgingly. The servant of Jesus ministers to the human and the spiritual needs of others. The servant of Jesus does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regards others as more important than himself. Philippians chapter 2. The servant of Jesus ministers to the spiritual needs of others by leading them to Christ for their initial washing by the blood of Jesus. The servant of Jesus lets them know to whom they need to go for continual cleansing of the dirt that they will pick up along a long worldly road. Knowing that Jesus washed even Judas's feet, there's no exception for those who need to be ministered to in humility, including that person for whose feet we think are just way too smelly for us to even get close to, much less wash. Regarding Jesus, I think that it would be easy to wash his feet with reverence and respect and gratitude for who he is, our Savior and Lord. But to wash each other's feet, well, I think that's where the difficulty lies. But to refuse to serve others, to refuse to humble ourselves is to place ourselves above Jesus. And as we've read, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus, the master of the towel, one of his disciples, and wants us to be people of the towel, ready and willing to wash one another's feet. Verse 17 gave the disciples, and it gives us a foundation and a reason for a life of humility and service. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. At this point in the upper room discourse, Jesus didn't stop and give his disciples a multiple choice test to see how they're doing to complete and turn in before they leave. No, he just said, Look, you've heard what I said. Now remember to do it. And if you do, you will be blessed. The word blessed in this verse is Macarius, and it means receiving God's favor. And that is what occurs as we walk in humility and in holiness. The sequence is important. Humbleness, holiness, then blessedness. Aristotle didn't get it right. He defined happiness as good fortune joined to virtue. But I like the virtue part, but good fortune, that's just luck and That might do for some, but it'll never do for a Christian. Blessedness is so much better than happiness, as real joy is the byproduct of a holy life that's humbly lived in the will of God. Real joy comes when we serve others in the name of Christ, when we're a people of the towel. For Jesus, removing his robe and wrapping himself with a towel to be used to wash the feet of his disciples was a perfect visual lesson of humility and service. But of course, this wasn't the first time that Jesus taught on this subject. No, there was that child in Matthew 18 when the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then there was the time in Matthew 20 when the mother of the sons of Zebedee looked, lobbied—I guess, yeah—lobbied for Jesus to choose James and John to sit on his left and his right in his kingdom. The fact that these two and their mom asked for such favoritism, well, it kind of fired up the rest of the group, and so much so that Jesus needed to de-escalate the potential conflict between his disciples, beginning in verse 25 of Matthew 20, by saying to them, "You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them." And their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For the disciples, all this teaching on humility and service seemed to be falling place there in the upper room that is, for all except one. As Jesus states in verse 18, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it it is that the scripture might be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Ah, Judas. Judas, the one who experienced firsthand the life and the lessons of Jesus, the one who had the same spiritual privileges as the other disciples. And yet, for Judas, none of that seemed to matter. In spite of all that our lord said about money and all of his warning about greed and envy judas continued to steal from the treasury in spite of all of our lord's warning about unbelief judas persisted in his rejection judas had heard jesus say truly i tell you unless you change and become like little children you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven judas had heard jesus say whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Judas knew that his feet had just been washed by the Master, yet his hard heart did not yield to the ministry of Jesus. But it surely wasn't the fault of Jesus that Judas was not pure of heart. The same Son of God that spoke to Judas is the same Son of God that spoke to the other disciples. Judas's choice to not believe our Lord and his own love of money took priority and opened the door for Satan's influence. Judas, who had been with Jesus and who had all the outward appearance of a trusted companion, would betray Jesus and then hang himself. A clear description of the prophecy Jesus is referencing here in verse 18. When he was quoting Psalm 41.9, Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. When David wrote Psalm 41, he was probably referring to his counselor, whose name was Ahithophel, who turned traitor and joined Absalom's rebellion against him. But what does it mean, he has lifted up his heel? Swedes, who was the writer of an ancient Greek lexicon, says that this references those who are running in a race, and one runner tries to trip the other up. This was alleged to have occurred in the 1984 Summer Olympics in the 3,000-meter run. Some may remember the Mary Decker, Zola Bud incident, causing Mary Decker, the American who was running for gold, to fall, injure herself, and she needed to be carried off the track by her boyfriend and her coach. And Zola Bud was, it turns out, mistakenly charged with lifting up her heel against Mary Decker but the video revealed that Mrs. Decker had actually tripped herself up but for Judas lifting up his heel against the Savior was true and his guilt was real so it's significant that both Judas and Ahithophel committed suicide by hanging themselves however Judas did not commit suicide in order to fulfill biblical prophecy for that would make God the author of his sin Judas was responsible for his own decisions. Yet, Jesus had known all along that Judas would betray him. And verse 19 tells us why Jesus predicted the betrayal in the presence of his disciples. Verse 19, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. When the betrayal actually occurred, his disciples would know that it had been prophesied in Scripture. And this would strengthen their faith, just as the words of Jesus in verse 20 would do the same. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. These had to be comforting words to his disciples as Jesus links his disciples to himself and to his father. In view of the prophecy about Judas and his betrayal, Jesus is saying, Don't despair when Judas betrays me and I'm crucified. Know that you will go in my name and that by going in my name, you will also be going in my father's name. As we come to a close, let's review the story. The disciples were alone with Jesus in the upper room. Because it was a Passover meal, the disciples were reclining in the traditional posture with their feet stretched out behind them away from the table. There are probably a few murmurs and whispers and you know, what's going on here, and then silence as Jesus gets up from supper, just as he rose from the place of perfect fellowship with God the Father. He then lays aside his garments, just as he had temporarily set aside his glorious ex- existence. He then takes a towel, just as he took upon himself the form of a servant, and he wraps that towel around his waist, for he had come to serve. He pours water into a basin just as he was about to pour out his blood in order to wash away human sin. And in spite of Peter's initial objection, Jesus washes the disciples' feet as an example that they and we should wash one another's feet. On this occasion, Jesus had perfectly portrayed his life as he set aside his royal clothes of heaven. He put on the uniform of his servant, a towel. And then humbly served his disciples, and then took up his garments and reclined back at the table, just as Jesus was reclothed in honor and highly exalted in heaven. Followers of Jesus are given a similar path new life in Christ, humility and sacrifice, death and resurrection. This is the path of those who belong to Jesus, those who are people of the Tao. May we be those people ready to grab a towel to serve in the name of Jesus. As a reminder of John 13:1 through 20, we'd like for each person here, actually each family here, if you will, to receive a towel, a towel with our scripture passage on it. We have a few volunteers, I think are going to help out with this. We have two baskets of towels up here, two baskets in the back. It shouldn't take long. But as the towels are passed out, could we go to our red book, please, and sing number 236. Make me a servant. Number 236. And we will sing this verse. These verses until the towels are passed out. There you go.